you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We continue making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And as you turn there, let me just remind you that this Tuesday is a primary in, here in the state of Illinois. And so if you're a, of legal voting age, you're alive uh, and, and of legal, legal voting age, I encourage you to vote once uh, this, this Tuesday in the Illinois primary. And in all seriousness, I believe that the believers in our country and our community have a responsibility before God uh, to, to vote. I believe it's something that God has sovereignly placed us in a nation where we have uh, culpability, we have responsibility to take ownership of the government that's been entrusted to us. We are uh, in, a, in a republic. We are responsible for the leaders that are selected to represent us in various capacities. And so I encourage you uh, this Tuesday to exercise your God-given responsibility in the place that we live, and and vote. Vote for candidates uh, who will be faithful to, uh, to do what God has said government is supposed to do, uh, protect the innocent, punish those who are, are wicked, and allow us, as God would give us the ability to, to, to live in peace in a place where we can, can worship Him. And so I encourage you this Tuesday to exercise your God-given responsibility and do that. Romans uh, chapter 14, I'm sorry, uh, Luke chapter 14, I hope you've uh, made it there, and uh, if you would, please uh, stand with me as we read God's Word together, beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. Luke writes, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he, will send, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may be seated, and let's pray for God's blessing as we continue to look at his word this morning. And uh, Father, we do uh, pray for wisdom as we look at these verses and as we consider how you would have us apply them in our lives. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. On my day off each week, I try to set aside some time to spend with one child for some special daddy time. And this previous week, when I, when I did this, it was Ellie's turn to spend time with Daddy, and so I asked Ellie, I said, uh, sweetheart, uh, what would you like to do for, for Daddy time this week? And my little five-year-old girl said, uh, I would like to go to the Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, okay, what, what would you like to do at, at the Bass Pro Shop? She said, well, I would like to get a snack. 
and she had seen that they had a little snack shop. And so she said, I, w- I want to get a snack at the Bass Pro Shop. And I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And so we went down to the Bass Pro Shop to the snack area. And uh, we, we went into this little area where all these snacks are. And we started at one end of the area. And uh, Ellie went up to this little area and she pointed at the first snack and she said, Daddy, what is this? So, well, uh, that's a Hershey's candy bar. Is it good? Yeah, it's, it's criminally good. Uh, these things are amazing. Uh, she goes, how much does it cost? Uh, it looks like 99 cents or something. Uh, she goes, okay. What's this? That, that's a lollipop, sweetheart. Is it good? No, it'll, it'll rot out your teeth. Um, how much does it cost? A- 89 cents. Dad, what's this? Seriously, I'm not exaggerating by a lot when I say she went to every item in that snack area asking, what is this? Is it good? How much does it cost? I understood the first two questions, but I got a little confused by the third question. And after about the 20th thing that she was asking me this question, I said, okay, sweetheart, why do you care how much these things cost? I've got it covered. A daddy is a very wealthy man. And... <laughs> I'm going to pay for this. I, I've got it all covered. And she said, uh, well, Daddy, will you please just answer the question? Yes, it's 89 cents, 79 cents. And so we went through this entire store, and I said, sweetheart, please, please just, just pick some. Uh, Daddy, Daddy's at the point, I'll buy you one of everything if we can <laughs> just, just make this purchase. We had a great time. So uh, later, I was telling Whitney about this. I said, the stranger, she just a- kept asking me these three questions. What is this? Is it good? How much does it cost? And Whitney laughed, and she said, well, you know why she's asking you how much everything costs, right? I said, I have no idea. She's, and Whitney says, she has $2 to her name. Like, that's the extent of her wealth right now. And so she is constantly asking people how much things cost because she wants to know what she can do with these $2, now, whenever I talk to my kids, when I tell my kids, hey, let's talk economics, they kind of roll their eyes and groan a little bit. But uh, Ellie is practicing sound economic philosophy here. She understands that she has limited resources, and so she's trying to determine the relative value of things to decide what she is someday going to spend those $2 on. She understands if I get this lollipop that's not that great, I am no longer going to be able to purchase this Hershey's candy bar, which is God's gift to humanity. Um, I've got to make a decision here. If I go and buy this candy, I can't buy this toy. If, if I buy this toy, I can't buy, you see what she, she has to understand the relative value of things. A theologian has said, we measure the value of things by what we will give up in order to obtain them. And what's true in economic theory is also true in our spiritual lives. And, and my question for you this morning is, is relatively simple. Um, how much do you value Jesus Christ? How valuable is Jesus Christ to you? And you can determine how valuable he is by what you're willing to give up in order to obtain him. So, for example, this morning, if I, if I said, uh, do you love Jesus Christ? Do you want to have Jesus Christ? And you said, absolutely. And I said, well, would you be willing to suffer the loss of your reputation at work 
in order to be obtain in order to obtain Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to suffer the scorn of your friends at school in order to live according to Jesus Christ and obtain him? And you said, no, I'm not willing to do that. You would have just revealed that the value you place upon the reputation that you have is greater than the value you place upon Jesus Christ. If I said, would you be willing to sacrifice your job in order to obtain Jesus Christ? And you said, no, you've revealed that the value you place upon Jesus Christ is less than the value upon your job, the value that you place upon your job, and so on and so forth. Do you value Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to to give up your your relationship with your spouse in order to, to pursue Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to even suffer the loss of relationship with your parents or with your own children in order to obtain Jesus Christ? If not, your value for those relationships is greater than the value that you give to Jesus Christ. The central idea I believe that we're looking at this morning as we look at these verses is that the heart of the true disciples values, the heart of the true disciple values Jesus Christ above anything else. These passages describe the heart of the true believer. These verses describe the commitment that the true believer makes when he or she places her faith or his faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, Daniel, whenever I became a Christian, I didn't, I didn't knowingly say Jesus Christ is more valuable to me than, than my mom or my dad or than my brothers or my sisters. And I say, well, that, that's fine. But what I would suggest to you is this. If at that moment that you were placing your faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing that you were a sinner, recognizing that the penalty for sin is, is death and eternal separation in hell from God, And recognizing that Jesus Christ was the one who could save you, deliver you from your sin, and bring you into relationship with Jesus Christ. At that moment, if if I would have asked you, well, is, is Jesus Christ more valuable than your toys, or is Jesus Christ more valuable than your job, or is Jesus Christ more valuable than, than fill in the blank, I believe the heart of the, the true believer in that instance would always say, well, yeah, Jesus Christ is, is more valuable than any of the things that you're mentioning. And so even if that moment of salvation, you didn't knowingly think through all the things in your life and say, yeah, Jesus Christ is more valuable than one, two, three, four, five, all, and list all these things, I believe the heart attitude of the true disciple, the heart attitude of the true disciple is, is one that recognizes the infinite, immeasurable value of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you would tell me yeah, there are things in my life that are more valuable than Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you, you're not a believer. You're not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that things in your life won't vie for that affection. You won't struggle sometimes with living consistently with what you truly believe. But the heart of the true disciple, I believe, is a heart that values Jesus Christ above all else. We're going to look at that as we look at these verses here in Luke chapter 14. In fact, there's kind of two things that I want, I think Jesus wants us to know as we go through these verses. The first is this, Jesus Christ wants us to know the terms of discipleship. He wants us to know the terms of discipleship. Look at verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and and said, and so now, and then uh, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and comes to me and and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, remember what's been been taking place in the Gospel of Luke. 
Jesus has set his eyes toward Jerusalem and has been traveling toward Jerusalem for several chapters now. And in these last couple verses in Luke chapter 14, Luke has told us about Jesus' encounter at the dinner with these Pharisees. And Jesus has just told this parable of the great banquet. And he's talked about the value of the invitation to the banquet. And some people have rejected that invitation. Very foolishly, they have said that other things are more important and more valuable than attending this banquet. They're, they're fools, and they are people who have insulted God. They're people who are not going to receive the, the benefits of participating in that banquet. That's what Luke has just told us. Now, Luke tells us this story right on the heels of that event, where great crowds are accompanying Jesus. And Jesus is going to talk to them about the terms or the conditions upon which they can call themselves disciples of Jesus. In the first century Jewish culture, a disciple was a a follower or an adherent to a a teacher or a follower of a leader or a follower of a movement. One dictionary kind of, as it's talking about discipleship, talks about the different facets of discipleship that exist in this culture. People could be disciples of a philosophical system. They could be disciples of a religious institution. They could be disciples of a religious leader. They could be uh, disciples of like a revolutionary movement. As you look in scripture, you see disciples of Jesus. You see disciples of John the Baptist. You see disciples of the scribes and Pharisees. And what that means to be a disciple, it means that you're looking to this leader or to this movement to give you direction how to live your life. And if you're a disciple of an individual, what you're saying is, I'm going to live my life like that person lives their life, and the person who was discipling you could lay out the conditions upon which you could call yourself a follower or an adherent to him. And so you would enter into this relationship of discipling, and you tried to imitate how they lived their lives. You saw that they had worth and value, and, and you wanted to imitate them in their life. And then after you finish this time of discipleship, you'd go out and, and you'd be a disciple of that person and you'd live your life and, and try to live in these different contexts the same way that this person might live in those contexts. And so what's happening here in verse 25 is that there's a lot of people who are following Jesus Christ around as he lives and as he teaches. And as they do this, they have this assumption that they're followers of Jesus. They're disciples. I, I go where Jesus goes, and I, I listen to the things that he says, and, and I agree with them, and, and I, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm his disciple. You're a disciple of the Pharisees? That's great. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And here, in these words that Jesus speaks, he's going to offer a correction <laughs> And he's going to lay out the terms of discipleship. And he's going to say, look, you think you're a follower of me, but you're not yet. And you're not because you don't rightly understand my value and recognize the terms upon which a person can rightly be called a disciple of me. In fact, he's going to lay out three conditions, three terms for discipleship. The first condition, the first condition is found in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's the first term? What's the first condition for discipleship? Hate your family. 
hate your family. Those are strong words, right? In fact, I, I in in the uh, in the, in my my book, I was I, I wrote a section. In one of the sections, I was talking about following Jesus, and I wrote a condition, the you know, first condition: hate your family. And the the editor sent back the manuscript to me, and he said, "Well, I, that's too strong." You know, I, how else can we word this? I said, "Well, let's. How about this? Let's use Jesus's words: hate your family." Okay, I said, "All right." Jesus purposefully uses some very strong, shocking words here, right? Now, you say, well, hold on, Daniel. Other places in Scripture, Jesus says to, to love people. Scripture says to love people. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Matthew 5:44. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ephesians 5, 25, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. You say, so clearly, we're not supposed to hate in the sense of having animosity towards people, right? We're not supposed to say, look, uh, honey, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and so I hate you, okay? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, no, of course not. Jesus is using a rhetorical device here. You see it other places in Scripture by which uh, he, he's using this idea that you love someone so much that by comparison, by comparison, you, you hate everyone else. So like in Malachi chapter 1, God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, my love for Jacob is so great that my relationship to Esau can, can be compared to hatred. In Genesis chapter 29, it says the Lord saw that, this is verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, did, did Jacob actively hate Leah? No, but his, his love for Rachel was, was such that his relationship with Leah was, was by comparison hatred. It wasn't active animosity toward, but it was that his love for Rachel was so great. Matthew 10, 34, and following, Jesus says some very similar things, and, and Matthew puts it this way. He says, um, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so the idea here, and, and don't minimize what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying you're supposed to have this active hatred towards someone, but his key point is the hard attitude of someone who comes to me for salvation is going to be a person who recognizes my value more than any other relationship that exists in their life. And so as you look at your relationship with First of all, what's the first example he gives? The relationship with your father and mother. Your relationship with your father and mother is going to be such that, you're, that compared to your love for Jesus Christ, their opinions, their, their value that they place upon you doesn't matter. By the way, that, that's a hard thing for parents to allow their children to do, isn't it? <laughs> to allow their children to love Jesus Christ more than they love themselves more than the, the children love themselves. Just thinking about the application of this in, in my own family's life, you know, uh, Whitney and I made the decision several years ago that, that God was calling us here and that God was call, continuing to call us here. And so we had to make a decision. As much as we love and, and miss our family down in Texas, God is, is calling us to, to stay here. And so our love for God means that what our families would naturally want us to do doesn't matter in comparison with following God, right? What helps is to have parents who also have that same love for God and encourage and allow children to pursue that which God has called them to. 
uh, Whitney's parents are, are here this weekend, and, and just uh, being able to spend time with them is, is so precious. And, and seeing their, you know, the, no, none of our parents have ever said anything negative about us, us being here apart from, from we miss you, right? In fact, uh, my little sister, little baby sister, is, is moving to Colorado away from Texas. And, uh, you know, don't call my mom right now on the phone because it'll become a very teary conversation. But at the same time, my mom is grateful to God that, that she has a daughter that's, that's following her husband and, and loves him and, and wants to pursue God's plan for their lives, okay? It's a hard thing for, for our, our hearts that love these relationships with our families so much to say, you know what, as much as I love this relationship with my father, my mother, my, my, uh, my siblings, my, my spouse, my children, those relationships are not as valuable to me as my relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so families are sometimes going to want us to do things that are contrary to what God wants us to do. The things that, and this is especially true if our, our families uh, are not believers, but the things that we do as Christians with our finances may strike our family members as very strange. The things that we decide to do in parenting our children to our family members may seem very strange and wrong. The things, if we're a young person, we're trying to follow Jesus Christ, and the things that our parents may want us to do with our lives and what we're choosing to do as we follow Jesus Christ may be at odds with one another. And so it's very Delicate is you seek to honor your parents, but follow Jesus Christ to do what he calls you to do more than what anyone else desires that you do. But Jesus is very clear. Look, if you come to have a relationship with me, you say, yeah, God, I'm really excited about this relationship with you that I'm going to have through your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ seems like a, a pretty cool guy, but man, not as cool as mom you can't be my disciple. You don't understand my value. You don't understand the terms of this discipleship. Condition number one, hate your family. Understand that Jesus is saying, I am more valuable than any other human relationship that exists in your life. And when mom or dad or siblings or, or, or spouse or children want you to, to, to do something that you believe is contrary to what God is calling you to do, you have to say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ instead, counting the relational cost here. The second condition that Jesus gives is in verse 27. He says, okay, if you don't hate even your own life, your relationships with all these other people, you can't be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So condition number two for discipleship, condition number two is to bear your cross. Jesus is saying here, look, not only am I more valuable than any other relationship that exists in your life, I'm more valuable than any sort of physical safety that's going to exist in your life. I'm worth suffering for physically. I think sometimes this verse loses its impact because of the culture in which we live. I mean, what is a cross? A cross is like this ornament of decoration. You can wear it on a necklace. As you come into my home, there's kind of a cross on the wall. Uh, there's, there's crosses on your Bible, on your clothing. I mean, so I'm not sure if we understand the, the, the deadliness of this symbol, the offense of it. What, what Jesus is saying in our, our cultural terms is this. Look, if you want to be my disciple— then what you need to do is walk into the gas chamber. If you want to be my disciple, 
strap yourself down in the electric chair. Strap yourself down on the lethal injection table. If you want to be my disciple, walk up the steps of the gallows and slip the noose around your neck. The cross was a sign of execution, and to bear one's cross meant that you were willingly going to your own death and execution. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be my disciple, bear your cross. Prepare for physical suffering. Not only am I more valuable than any relationship that exists in your life, I am more valuable than life itself. And to be my disciple means the willingness to die to self. And to say all, all my dreams and aspirations and hopes are, are nothing compared with Jesus Christ. And whatever physical difficulties, whatever suffering he calls me to, I'm prepared to undergo as I follow after Jesus Christ. You want to be Jesus Christ's disciple? Does this discipleship thing seem pretty cool? Well, it's not just being part of a big group. Because Jesus has this big group that's following him around. And sometimes our temptation can be, look, I, I'm, I'm part of Bethany Community Church. I, I sit in the theater at five points. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. No, discipleship means I'm, re I'm recognizing that all relationships pale in comparison with my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I willingly embrace suffering that Christ calls me to. What's the third term of discipleship, the third condition? We see it later in the passage here. It's in verse 33. Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Third term of discipleship, condition number three, renounce everything. Renounce everything. I'm more valuable than any physical possession that you could ever possess or hope to possess. I'm more valuable than that. You know, it's interesting, these conditions that, that Christ lays out here, um, hate your family, bear your cross, renounce everything, they, they really relate to those things that are most dangerous to, to full-hearted discipleship. They affect our, our relationships, our desire for physical comfort, and our desire for physical possessions. And Jesus Christ is saying, look, what you need to understand is whatever it is that vies for your affections, that competes with me in your heart, whatever it is, you need to say, it's nothing compared to me. Relationship with my spouse, is as wonderful as that is, it's nothing compared to Jesus Christ. My relationship with, with my, my children, is, as much as I love them, nothing compared to Jesus Christ. The, my desire for physical well-being and, and safety, is as fine as the desires that is, nothing compared with following after Jesus Christ. My physical possessions, nothing compared with Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, the question is, why so costly? Why does God, in his sovereignty, decide that the terms of discipleship are, are so high? Why would he exact such a price from us? And I believe it goes back to Ellie economics, right? If Ellie believes that a lollipop is more valuable than a Hershey's candy bar, she sinned grievously and failed to rightly understand the value of a Hershey's candy bar. If you and I say mom is greater than Jesus, 
we've failed grievously and not rightly understood the value of Jesus Christ. If I gave you $10, or if you had $10, and I said, I'd like to sell you a pair of my old socks for that $10, what'd you say? Thanks, but no thanks, right? What if your child was sick and you had $10, and $10 would purchase life-saving medication for your child? How worthless would that $10 seem in comparison with that medicine? What Jesus Christ in our lives wants us to understand is his value. And so by, by saying, look, all these things are worthless compared to me, allows us to rightly understand his value. And a person who says, yeah, I'd like to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what will it cost me, and isn't willing to pay the ultimate price, is a person who doesn't understand Jesus Christ, and I would suggest to you, is not a true disciple. The true disciple understands the terms of discipleship and values Christ above all else. So that's the first thing that I think Jesus wants us to know. Let's, let's look at the second thing that Jesus wants us to do in these verses. The second thing he wants us to do is determine whether he's worth it. He wants us to determine whether he, whether Christ is worth it. And so he says, okay, here are the terms of discipleship. Uh, you need to renounce all relationships. You need to prepare for physical suffering. You need to, in fact, renounce everything that you have. And, and now you need to decide whether or not I'm worth it. Count the cost. Look at verse 28. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? figure out, am I able to do this, whether he has enough to complete it. Verse 29, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so in other words, before a person enters into this, this job, this task, this project of building a tower, he's going to consider how much building a tower costs. Otherwise, he looks like a fool. Similarly, if, if a person is going to enter into a relationship with, with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ does something very interesting here. He doesn't say, yeah, come on, let's do it. Let, let's do this relationship thing. He says, no, 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 hold on. I want you to understand, before you do this, my value and my worth. And I want you to determine whether or not I'm worth it. And, and otherwise, you haven't entered into a real relationship with me. Isn't it interesting that Christ encourages people to follow him? by almost discouraging them sometimes? I think we can learn a lot about that in our modern evangelism techniques. Sometimes our temptation is just to say like the bare minimum number of facts about Jesus to kind of like trick people into becoming Christians. Like, oh man, being a Christian is, is awesome. Like you, you get to wear uh, like shirts with logos on them and and cool slogans, and like there's bumper stickers you can, I mean, it's really cool to be a Christian, and, and man, the fellowship is great, and um, like a Sunday after baptism, we had donuts. I mean, being a Christian is great. And, and Jesus Christ, as he does evangelism, does it a lot differently. Yeah, you like mom? Yeah, you got to hate her to follow me. You like possessions? bad news, you got to get rid of them in your heart in order to follow me. You like your physical life, bad news, you're going to be persecuted. 
why does he do that? In fact, let me, let me read some other passages that, that kind of do this same thing. Um, Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, You think I've come to bring peace on earth? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Luke 9, we read this a few months ago, he says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, Jesus says. Many, I tell you, will seek it, seek to enter, and not be able to. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul tells young Timothy. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to understand his worth, to determine whether or not we agree that he's worth that. And so this first illustration he gives is of this, this tower the second illustration he gives is of a king at war. Verse 31, or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he will send a delegation and, and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so in this second illustration, what he's saying is, imagine you're this king, and you've got this army of 10,000, and you hear that another king is coming against you. And, you know, neutrality is not an option here. You can't just say, you know what, I choose not to fight. You have no option. You have to deal with this king that's coming against you, and you have an inferior number of forces. And so he says, you either need to determine, yeah, I'm going to be able to take this guy, or I've got to figure out a way to make peace. You can't wait until he's upon you in order to determine what you're going to do. Or if you do, you're a fool. Similarly, the person who's heard about the value of Jesus Christ must determine whether or not Christ is worth it. He gives one more illustration here of salt. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so he's saying in, in this culture, salt could sometimes become mixed with other elements. And as moisture hit the salt, the salt could evaporate, and you'd just be left with these other elements that, that had no saltiness, and so they were completely worthless. A disciple... A disciple who doesn't understand the value of Jesus Christ is worthless. A person who doesn't know the terms of discipleship and determine that Jesus Christ is worth paying that price is a worthless disciple, not a true disciple. So, Jesus calls us to determine whether or not He's worth it. 
Sir John Franklin. Sir John Franklin was a, an explorer in 1845. And I want to read an excerpt from an essay called An Expedition to the Pole by Annie Dillard. And, and Kent Hughes, as, as he's talking about this passage, uh, talks about her essay and sees an application from her essay to this, the preparation that's needed to follow after Jesus Christ. And, and uh, Sir John Franklin sits at, sets out in 1845 on a journey that he had no concept of how to prepare for. Listen to what Dillard writes. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage from the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two three-masted ships. Each sailing vessel carried a steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire two- to three-year journey. Instead of additional coal, so instead of carrying additional coal, listen to what they carried. They made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The officers' sterling silver knives, forks, and spoons were particularly interesting. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crests, and the expedition carried no special clothing for their Arctic journey, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. You think they understood the conditions in which they were about, the conditions they were about to face? Listen to what happened. The ships set out amid enormous glory and fanfare. Franklin uttered his utterance, the highest object of my desire is faithfully to perform my duty. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound, and he reported back to England on the high spirits of officers and men. He would be the last European to ever see them alive. Years later, different groups would find evidences of this men's expedition. What had happened is that the, the boats had become trapped in some ice, and your people would report on finding uh, dead members of the Franklin expedition. Uh, some heard stories of men pushing and pulling a wooden boat across the ice, and they, they found the boat at a place called Starvation Cove, the remains of 35 men who had been dragging it. At Terror Bay, they found a tent in ice, and in it, 30 men. Some as they looked at the remains of people who had been on this journey, they found them still carrying flatware engraved with the officers' initials and family crests. They found a piece of a backgammon board, letter clips. These were people completely unprepared for the journey that awaited them. Another man, Sir Robert Falcon Scott, also died on an expedition. He died on the Antarctic Peninsula. He was never able to bring himself to do the difficult things that his guides told him to do. For example, he, was, uh, he didn't want to use dogs and didn't want the dogs to eat each other. He used English ponies and carried hay for them. He felt that eating dogs was inhumane and also felt, as he wrote, that when man reached a pole unaided, the journey was a fine conception. The conquest is more nobly and splendidly won. His loftiness of sentiment, listen to this, his loftiness of sentiment, his purity, his dignity and self-control makes his farewell letters fine reading, letters that were found underneath his body. You see, these were people that entered into a, a difficult journey completely unprepared for the, the difficulty that, that was facing them. 
they were completely unprepared for the task that awaited them. And so they entered it like a lark. Letting you know the cost of following Jesus Christ is crucial. It's crucial for true salvation. And if you follow a Jesus Christ who's not worth leaving your mom and dad for, if you follow a Jesus Christ who's not more valuable than your spouse, if you follow a Jesus Christ who isn't more precious to you than your children, I have some bad news for you. You're following a false Christ. The true Christ is worth more than, than anything that you could ever hope to possess. The true Christ is worth encountering any suffering. The true Christ is worth more than any other relationship that exists in your life. And if you're not prepared for the difficulties that await you as you follow Jesus Christ, understanding his worth, you're not prepared for the Christian life. You're not a true disciple. Those are hard words, and yet they're Jesus' words. Some of you this morning, some of you this morning have had fond ideas about Jesus. Jesus Christ is kind of this, this, this great teacher, and, and so at one point maybe you kind of prayed a prayer and said, Jesus, I, you seem like a neat guy, please forgive me my sins, with no understanding of his value. And now, as you've been living your life, different values have come into your life, and you said, these things are more valuable than him. The, the reality is you may not be a disciple. And yes, we're going to struggle to live in terms of what we truly believe, but if you don't truly believe that Jesus Christ is more valuable than all the other things and haven't made that commitment, you're not a disciple. My encouragement for each of us is to consider Jesus' words here about discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't mean being part of the big crowd. Being a disciple of, of Jesus Christ means understanding the words that he says in John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Ellie's three questions are very relevant. What is this? Is it good? How much does it cost? Do you understand who Jesus Christ is? That he is... God himself, who has a value above any value that you could ever hope to obtain, that he offers you eternal life through faith in him alone. Do you understand that he is good, that he is beyond good, that he is the, the highest good for which you could ever hope to strive? And do you understand, therefore, that his cost is infinite, his price is infinite? There is no relationship that's more valuable, no amount of suffering that isn't worth him, no possession that's not worthy of being renounced in order to follow him. That's the heart of the true disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we can obtain him through faith in you. We pray that you'd give us hearts of, of faith as we respond in obedience to him. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.